Yay nay oh man. Welcome to another episode of Yay, Nay, or Meh, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I am your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. And with no cinematic films released this week that I'm interested in, I'm assuming, thanks to distribution companies wanting to avoid Eternals for another week, and also with my Film Bath Festival special podcast out of the way, I have had time to catch up with a few of the films which are on my mountainous to-watch list. So in this streaming special, I will have reviews of the Irish vampire movie Boys from County Hell and the latest film from director Jim Cummings' The Beta Test, both available on streaming platforms. We also have the French film The Mad Woman's Ball, directed by Melanie Laurent and available through Amazon Prime Video. And we also have the two Netflix films I saw this week. Possibly the first big Oscar contender or potential Oscar contender that Netflix has released this year, the black western The Harder They Fall. And also the big gigantic blockbuster, which is supposedly the most expensive film that Netflix has ever produced for itself, Red Notice. So plenty of streaming material to be going on with. So let's just get on with today's reviews. Home movies. Boys from County Hell is an Irish horror comedy-ish, which I'll be getting on to, written and directed by Chris Bohr, or possibly Boff. It's B-A-U-G-H. That could be pronounced any number of ways, but I'm going to go with Bohr. This is his second feature-length film after the revenge thriller Bad Day for the Cats in 2017, but he has done a lot of TV, including episodes of things like Tin Star and Vera, and some shorts including a short called Boys from County Hell, which has now been expanded into this feature-length film, which is set in a small Irish town which has one claim to fame. They claim that a local Irish legend of the Abitag is the first recorded story of vampirism in the western world and they claim that it was this local irish legend of the abitag and not vlad tapesh in romania which was the primary inspiration for bram stoker to write dracula because after all bram stoker was irish so the local pub is called the stoker every now and again An interested tourist shows up to be taken to the Cairn, which is supposedly the burial place of Abitag. 
and it's one of those things that at one of the same time the locals deeply resent and are grudgingly appreciative of the attention that this can gets the local town which nothing else happens in but there are plans afoot for this cairn to be demolished in order for a bypass to be built. This is not something the locals are particularly happy about, and the local contractor, Nigel O'Neill, was already something of a brusque outsider figure, and he's even more disliked now he's agreed to take on this job. And he's also resented by his son, Jack Rowan, who is drifting through life, is constantly being told by his father he's not good enough, and he kind of now believes it. So he just drifts through life, catching pints off his mates, building up a massive tab in the pub, The Stoker, and hanging out with his best friend, Fra Fee, and his girlfriend, Louisa Harland who, of course, he secretly has a crush on. But it reaches the point where Jack Rowan does need money now, so he agrees to work on his father's construction site, knocking down this cairn and working on the bypass. But the night before he starts work on his father's site, he goes out drinking with his best friend, Fra Fee, and taking a shortcut past this can, Frafi accidentally dies. Which obviously puts Jack Rowan into a tailspin, but he still shows up the next day working on this bypass site alongside his father, Nigel O'Neill, his recently dead best friend's girlfriend, Louisa Harland, and the local layabout, Michael Hoff. But then strange things start happening on this site. The cairn does get demolished, but the next day is instantly rebuilt. People disappear without warning and then reappear with violent tendencies. And perhaps there is some truth to this vampire legend, and perhaps it has been awakened. So what will Jack Rowan, Louisa Harland and Michael Hoff do to protect themselves and the local town from this legendary Irish vampire? This is a film which brands itself as a horror comedy. And yes, I think I can see that, but... What I think this mostly is, is a horror movie with a somewhat tongue-in-cheek attitude to it. Yes, there are some laugh lines, there are some odd juxtapositions, but mostly it's played relatively straight with a little bit of absurdism, I mean, playing up the interpersonal relationships between these people you know jack rowan i secretly love my best friend's girlfriend and my father is incredibly dismissive of me and 
trying to find my own place in the world, my own path to take. Frafi's father, John Lynch, is not only the landowner where the cairn is built, but he's also the local undertaker, which is a very convenient thing when you're in a vampire movie. So, I mean, there's some nice setup and payoff here. And I also think it's a very interesting form of vampirism, one I'm not sure I've ever seen before. And I'm presuming this is from the original Irish legend, but this is not a situation where the vampire comes up to you, grabs you and bites your neck. This is a situation where you start bleeding from every orifice. I mean, the opening scene is an old Irish couple sitting down in front of the television, bickering with each other. This is boring. Let's change the channel. Why don't we go out? Oh, we, no, we can't be bothered doing that. I mean, it's just tired old couple arguing with each other. And suddenly the wife starts bleeding from her nose and says, oh, what's happened here? And then the husband looks at her and he starts bleeding from his eyes. And gradually all the blood starts just pouring out of every orifice, like they've got Ebola or something. And all the blood flows out of this tiny little living room in rural Ireland, down the street. And the blood goes to the vampire rather than the vampire coming to the blood. And everybody in the town starts being affected by this. And it's a really, really disturbing and a really creepy image. It's very, very well done. And when eventually we do see the vampire, that too is a very, very unique look for a vampire. It really reminded me, and this has to have been deliberate, but it really reminded me of bog bodies. You know, those Paleolithic sacrificial victims who were chucked into bogs for the sake of the harvest or whatever. And they've got that very brown, very dark, leathery appearance, that mummified appearance, and the bright red hair. And that's what Abitag looks like when we eventually see him. And I think that, too, is a really cool and a really unique way of dealing with vampirism. I also think the filmmaking is pretty well done. There is a deliberate reframing of an American werewolf in London where this Canadian couple show up and say, hey, isn't this the place that inspired Bram Stoker and Frafi and Jack Rowan and Michael Half team up and get a little bit of cash and a few tinnies out of these Canadian tourists? But it's a deliberate reframing of an American werewolf and Antonio, you're not welcome here, foreigner kind of thing. There's a little bit of that, but more than anything, they're just amused that these foreigners would want to come to this tiny, insignificant Irish town. And I also like the fact that certain aspects of the vampire mythology, which have been piled on to the vampire mythos generations after the origin, after Dracula, it's actually called out by name. I mean, I wrote in my notes that, yo, sunlight's not going to work, that was F.W. Murnau in Nosferatu. And there's actually a line of dialogue by the end of the film saying, yeah, there was this German guy who came up with sunlight and that's how you kill vampires. So yeah, I like the way it appreciates film history and nods to it, but does its own thing, does something 
significance. I mean, the way you deal with this vampire is very, very different to anything I've ever seen before. And again, I'm assuming very much aligned with Irish mythology. So, yeah, I think what we have here is an interesting and inventive, a more or less unique take on vampirism, taking this ancient Celtic lore as its starting point and doing something interesting with it, and mostly doing it in a straight-laced way. There's one moment of high surrealism and high absurdism, which really feels like it comes out of a Sam Raimi film, you know, one of the comedic Sam Raimi films, more than anything. And yeah, it's, it's a cool idea, it's a cool image, but it's such an outrageous thing to do that I'm not sure it entirely fits into this film, which is more tongue-in-cheek than funny, I would say. But regardless of that, what we have here is a fun, interesting, inventive take on vampirism, a nice take on small-town Irish life and family dynamics and friend dynamics, and the lack of ambition which leaves you in a small Irish town like this, and the ambition which maybe wants to take you away, and can you actually take that step and leave and do something for yourself that is one of the themes of this film and in general i think it works so yeah boys from county hell which takes its name from a pogues song which i think is uh, pretty interesting but yeah boys from county hell is available on streaming platforms and for me it's a reasonably high meh Next up is The Beta Test, the latest film written and directed by Jim Cummings. Following his feature-length efforts Thunder Road and The Wolf of Snow Hollow, both of which I really liked, this time Jim Cummings is joined as co-writer and co-director by P.J. McCabe, and indeed they both co-star in the film. And this is a tale of... Power and privilege in Hollywood and the dire consequences thereof. Jim Cummings plays a Hollywood agent whose business is starting to crack. He is doing this thing called packaging, which is frowned upon by wider Hollywood to the extent that. The WGA, the Writers Guild of America, is telling their members not to use Jim Cummings' agency as their representation. The agency, by the way, is APE, Ape, which I think is a very deliberate choice. But anyway, Jim Cummings and his partner, PJ McCabe, are desperately scrambling to try and keep their business together with all their WGA-affiliated clients leaving them. They're trying to get investment from a Chinese investor who dismissively calls this packaging thing that they're doing as agents pretending they're producers. So he is struggling to keep his shit together and keep his business together and keep his personal life together, 
he is living with and is about to get married to Virginia Newcomb, but he is far too busy dealing with all his other shit to prepare for the wedding. And that includes a mysterious purple envelope which shows up in his mailbox one day. In this purple envelope is an invitation for completely anonymous sex. If you show up at this hotel room at this time, if you tell us what your particular kinks are, what your particular fetishes are, we will accommodate them and you will have a completely anonymous experience with everything you would ever want to happen. Initially, Jim Cummings is sceptical about this. He puts the the letter in the bin, but he can't stop thinking about it. So eventually he does go to this hotel room where he is encouraged to put on a blindfold and proceeds to have blindfolded sex with a woman who is also wearing a blindfold and this is the most mind-blowing sex that Jim Cummings has ever had. And once he's had it once, he can't stop thinking about it, and becomes obsessed with trying to find out who set this up, who this other woman was, what's going on, what is the intention of this whole thing. And the more he becomes obsessed with uncovering this secret, the more his personal life and his professional life starts spiralling out of control. And all the while, there are a suspiciously high number of murders which are happening, which potentially might be related to these purple envelopes. I think the first thing that needs to be said about the beta test is the first thing. The first six minutes of the beta test are impeccable. It's one of the best openings of a film I think I've seen in a very, very long time. It would make an outstanding short film. For one thing, it's in Swedish, which you don't necessarily expect, particularly when I bought this through the Google Play Store. and. As convenient as the Google Play Store is, one thing they do not do well is subtitles. Initially, I watched and I thought, oh, they're speaking in Swedish, because I've watched enough Scandinavian TV dramas to recognise Swedish, but there wasn't any subtitles. So I thought, okay, I guess we're not supposed to know what this is. But the longer it went on, I think, hang on, no, this is too long. So I realised, oh, I need to turn the subtitles on. Why don't they turn them on automatically when you download something from the Google Play Store? I mean, recently I downloaded a Korean film called Innocence and the subtitles were just completely absent. And despite lengthy, lengthy conversations with customer support with the Google Play Store, it never got fixed. So, yeah, subtitles in the Google Play Store are really starting to piss me off. But, I mean, that's completely beside the point. So once I eventually turned on the subtitles and you start to realise what this conversation is between this husband and wife in this swanky Los Angeles apartment, it starts out intriguing. I mean, there's, there's something happening. You're not exactly sure why it's happening. 
then it was, oh, that was actually kind of clever. And then it gets, oh, now this is getting disturbing. And by the end of this six minutes, it's absolutely horrifying. It's beautifully constructed, beautifully paced. It tells you everything you need to know about what the themes of this film are going to be. And as I said, if you just cut out that first six minutes, I think as it stands, it would make an excellent short film. And with a little bit of context added, either you know, a beginning a framing device, maybe you could have made an outstanding short film out of this first six minutes. It's really, really good. And then as you start thinking about that, we are introduced to Jim Cummings character, this high-powered agents, this fast-talking, wheeler-dealer type who's constantly shouting at people, constantly on the phone to people, and as things go along, you realise, oh, hang on a minute, his business is starting to fail, and he's desperately trying to scramble to keep up. And he's also just about to get married. So all this stuff is building up, and he has this opportunity for release. He has this opportunity for fantasy in this purple envelope and eventually he takes it and this eventually starts to take over his life and i think jim cummings that has done something really really impressive here i have seen all three films feature length films that jim cummings has directed and indeed i've seen the short thunder road which is also very good. And I think Jim Cummings has one character type which he plays over and over again. In all three films, and to some extent the short, Jim Cummings is playing an entitled man, manically trying to keep his shit together and failing. He never seems to play sympathetic characters well, well his thunder road character was a little bit sympathetic but is deeply problematic as well i mean the use of guns in thunder road is very very disturbing but there's only a sliver of sympathy in thunder road in wolf of snow hollow and here in the beta test i found absolutely no sympathy for jim cummings he brought it on himself but it is fun seeing him absolutely implode I mean, this is a person who shouts at his employees. He has to force his employees to actually tell him the truth and work past the fakery that is standard in Hollywood. Even when he's trying to impress this potential Chinese investor, he goes to a silent auction and buys something off him, you know, Hey, I'm buying something for your favourite charity. Hey, do you want to maybe become one of our clients? And I found it very, very notable that the piece of art he chooses to buy is of a semi-naked woman. Even when he's doing something supposedly philanthropic, it has to be a semi-nude woman or a painting of a semi-nude woman. He has conversations with his business partner and friend, PJ McCabe, saying, yeah, isn't it a shame that you know, Harvey Weinstein basically fucked it up for everybody and, you know, adultery is down. We kind of miss the good old days. I mean, that's not what they're actually saying, but that's the subtext. He's 
on the phone to somebody, a, an old friend who he's had a recent contact with on social media, and social media is a, a heavy element of this as well. But you know, somebody who reconnected with him after years on social media, she he's on the phone to her and he's saying, Yeah, I'm 90 days sober, and he's got a tumbler of whiskey in his hand. Actually, that's in common with his character from Wilful Snow Hollow as well. So possibly Thunder Road, I can't remember. But anyway. He's outright lying on the phone to this person, and he's just not a good guy. I think there's a very, very telling line of dialogue which eventually comes out of the mouth of his fiancée, Virginia Newcomb. It must be absolutely exhausting pretending to be you. He's constantly acting. He is in certain places, speaking to his fiancée as if he's on a business call. You know, that exuberant, loud approach that he would take on a telephone conversation. He's taking with his fiancée who's sitting right next to him. He has all these things going on, and he's starting to break, to the extent that he's basically starting to hallucinate as well. There are certain fantasy sequences or hallucinations, it's never exactly sure which, but he has these moments of absence where he can't help thinking about this purple envelope. Almost any woman he comes across, he starts seeing in a sexualized way, which in its own way is kind of disturbing, but equally, it's kind of pathetic as well, and I think he is a pathetic character. And as the film goes along, the more we learn what's going on, the more the idea of social media comes into it, the more the idea of connection as an abstract concept, we're not just meeting somebody face-to-face, but meeting somebody in the digital realm, that starts becoming part of the conversation as well. And the uses of social media, the abuses of social media, how it supposedly connects us, but ultimately keeps us much further apart. There are a lot more murders in this film than there have any right to be. Given the eventual plot that is uncovered, the amount of death, the amount of murders which happen in this film is shockingly high. And I think that's kind of the point of what Jim Cummings and PJ McCabe were trying to say. They are portraying a deeply, deeply cynical world. A selfish world. It's a biting satire of a Hollywood that isn't quite past the Me Too movement. And in the opinion of Jim Cummings and PJ McCabe, the natural course of events would end up with a lot of people dead. And that is such a bitter attitude to have but it kind of fits with this film and yeah i did really really like this film i I think the concept of fame the concept of hollywood i mean hollywood as an abstract concept i think is taken down here as well i mean there's a line that jim cummings says at one point i thought you wanted to be famous which is actually a callback in a very darkly ironic callback to the opening scene i thought you wanted to be famous 
and he is genuinely shocked when he tries to pull, hey, I'm a Hollywood agent, surely you're an actor, you want to help me out, don't you? And the guy behind the desk is talking to a concierge at a hotel, surely you, you're an actor, you, you've got to have a headshot somewhere. And the concierge says, no, I work in a hotel, I don't want to be an actor, go away. And Jim Cummings is genuinely shocked that he has met somebody in Los Angeles who doesn't want to be in Hollywood. And again, this is a very bitter, very biting satire about the Hollywood system and the self-important white privilege that engenders. I mean, there's a throwaway line that one of the things that Jim Cummings is working on is a remake of Caddyshack made with dogs and directed by Tiger Woods. Now, that is just such an absurd idea. I can't help but thinking that Jim Cummings or PJ McCabe have actually heard that pitch somewhere. But this is Hollywood being taken down by insiders. In a lot of ways, I think this has got parallels with The Player, the Robert Altman film from, God, it must be close to 30 years ago now. But yeah, I mean, the cynical, biting way that Hollywood is taken down in the post-Harvey Weinstein world, or a world which is not quite post-Harvey Weinstein. I mean, there's a lot of stuff here. I think the film does lose a little bit of direction and a little bit of focus by the end. I think its broad concepts are very well handled, but the minutiae, the specifics of the end of the film I would have liked a tiny bit more clarity on, I think. I think it drifts to its end rather than rounds out its end to a, satisf- a fully satisfying conclusion. So I, I think it, it's, that's a minor criticism of the beta test, is it meanders a little towards the end. But other than that, I think the beta test is an excellent film. And alongside Jim Cummings' previous films, The Wolf of Snow Hollow and Thunder Road, Oh, and the short of Thunder Road you can see for free on Vimeo.com, and that is well worth checking out. The beta test is available through streaming platforms, and I did really enjoy it. And for me, it is a yay. And the last streaming film I want to talk about in this particular section is the Amazon Prime video, The Mad Women's Ball, or La Belle des Folles which is directed by, written by, and stars Melanie Laurent, the fantastic French actress who was in Inglourious Bastards and Beginners, amongst many other things. Only earlier this year, she was in the Netflix film Oxygen, which was actually pretty damn good. But she also has a background as a director. This is actually her fifth narrative feature-length film, She's directed in both English and French. And her next project as director looks really, really fascinating. It's called The Nightingale. It's based on a successful book. And it stars both Fanning sisters, both Elle and Dakota playing sisters. Or at least that seems to be what's going on. I mean, why hasn't anybody done that before? The Fannings are awesome. And yeah, I'm now really, really interested to see The Nightingale. But anyway, that's for the future. For right now, Available on Amazon Prime is The Mad Women's Ball. 
which is set in 1885 in Paris, where a young society woman, Lou de la Arge, starts causing problems for her family. In a very restrictive, very Catholic family, she disobeys her father and goes to attend the funeral of the Republican Victor Hugo. She has ideas about self-determination for women. She's the only person in the family who thanks the maid. She wants to read, she wants to debate. She wants to be an independent young woman, which is frowned upon by her upper-middle-class family. And when she starts saying that she can speak to the dead, an opportunity to get rid of Lou de Arge presents itself, and she is sent to the Salpietra Asylum for Women where the head nurse is being played by Melanie Laurent. This is an environment which is not conducive to recovery from your mental health issues, even if you do have mental health issues. Some of these women have just been thrown away to the asylum because it's just convenient. Lou de la Arge, who doesn't seem insane but does insist she can speak to the dead, tries to survive surrounded by people with varying disabilities and disadvantages. There are people with Down syndrome, there are people with epilepsy, there are people with depression, and even there's Lamanda Dietrich, whose only crime seems to have been she fought off an attempted rapist, and when she told on this person, she wasn't believed, and she was just thrown away to the insane asylum. And reading between the lines, it appears that even in the Salpietra Asylum, she is still being sexually exploited. So, yeah, the late 19th century was a shit place for women, is basically what this film is saying. And that's what the original novel that this film is based on, written by Victoria Mass, was saying. This is an award-winning novel which Melanie Laurent got her hands on when she wanted to make a film about feminism and the journey of feminism. So a producer friend gave her this, and the rest, as they say, is history. So can Lou de la Arge survive and maybe even escape this asylum? Can Melanie Laurent, the very intelligent head nurse of this asylum, fight back against the misogyny of the doctors who dismiss her out of hand, despite the fact she's had medical training herself and she's with these women all day, so she knows more than the doctors more often than not. So can they find some peace in this strange situation? I'm conflicted about the Mad Women's Ball. On the one hand, this is a brilliant dissection, an expose of the treatment of women in late 19th century and the treatment of mental health in the late 19th century. Women had no voice, women had no self-determination. If your father or husband said you're insane, you were insane and you were just thrown away and they threw away the key. 
the doctors at this asylum never actually see the patients unless they're giving grand demonstrations demonstrating hysteria and trying to cure hysteria by hypnotizing women and putting them through very sexualized treatments or just dumping them in baths of ice water. I mean, this is barbaric by modern standards. And even at the time, it was starting to think, is this actually working? And this nurse, Melanie Laurent, who has had medical training, realises, look, this is not working. We're actually making these women worse. Particularly the other senior nurse that we see, Emmanuel Burkow, she is, in my opinion, a literal sadist. She enjoys inflicting suffering on her patients. It turns out she has a very specific reason for doing that, but all the same, she is a literal sadist. And this is supposed to be helping? So, yes, this is a biting expose of the treatment of women, particularly women with mental health problems in the late 19th century. But the Occam's Razor reading of this film, the reading of this film which needs the least amount of extra information put upon it, is if Lou de la Arge can speak to the dead. She is literally communicating with spirits. In at least two scenes, there is information that Lou de Arge has which she could not possibly know unless she is literally talking to the dead. And I'm really not sure how I feel about this. When you already have this story set up about the treatment of women in the Salpietra Asylum in 1885, I mean, the head doctor is a real person. And looking on the Wikipedia page, it seems that there are real people who are well documented at the Salpietra Asylum. And the most famous one, aspects of that character are split between the characters of Melanie Laurent, Lou de Arge, and Lamande Dietrich. So there is some truth here, there is some genuine fact here. And there is some genuine horrific treatment of women and dismissal of women and outright misogyny. It's all there and that's fine. So did we need to also water down this grissy realism by having what appears to be some genuine supernatural elements to this story? I don't think it was necessary. I also think it's puts it in a different framework, which isn't necessarily helpful. I mean, it's actually kind of similar to what I felt about the French-Turkish film from about five or six years ago, Mustang, which I believe was nominated for the International Feature Oscar, or it's probably still the Foreign Language Oscar by then. But Mustang was an excellent film about the treatment of Turkish teenage girls. But right at the end, they added an extra element which I don't think was necessary. The, the story we already had was enough. It was harrowing enough to add extra elements to it. Ultimately, I think, harmed Mustang. And also, adding the supernatural elements to the Mad Women's Ball, I think, harms the film. I think it's unnecessary. When you have 
these genuine horrific things which are being done to women in this asylum and the quote-unquote treatments that they are getting i mean there's certain situations which is outright sexual assault i mean the journey of lamanda dietrich i think her performance is excellent i mean this naive woman who tried to report an attempted rape and was thrown into asylum for it and then one of the young doctors at this asylum is clearly grooming her i mean her portrayal i mean there's also some physical acting that lamanda dietrich does and by the end of the film there's a scene of outright sexual assault so yeah that is an important thing to explore it is a valuable historical document to discuss and contemplate that maybe in certain areas things haven't actually changed all that much so yeah there's all this gritty stuff there and then you have yeah she can also speak to ghosts and no I i don't think that was necessary i mean yes i'm sure that was probably in the original novel by victoria mass and maybe in the novel when you have a greater scope in order to explore those things maybe it works better in the novel when you have more time but here in this film adaptation it's an added element which muddies the waters and i think dilutes the power of the horrors which are inflicted on the women in this film but i I suppose this is a period where science and mysticism was a lot closer together than it is now i mean hypnotism or mesmerism was at this time and place a legitimate diagnostic and therapeutic action and making Lamanda Dietrich do all these strange things under hypnosis and touching her a little bit too intimately when she is under hypnosis that's you know for the benefit of these men in suits so the the boundary between science and mysticism is a little bit closer than it is today and yet there are definite barriers there i mean Melanie Laurent's father is a doctor and he is instantly dismissive of anything mystical. And there is also a very, very valid point that Lou de la Arge raises with one of the doctors. You say I am mad because I can say I speak to the dead. Yet St. Bernadette of Lourdes claimed to speak to the Virgin Mary and she is praised for it. What's the difference? And in my opinion, that's a very, very valid point. So, yeah, there's lots of little details here and there. I mean, Ludel Arge's brother is gay, and that's a much, much bigger secret in this time and place to keep hidden. Yet, he is not even questioned about it. And the smallest infraction from his sister, the female member of the family, throw her away into the asylum. And yeah, the, the misogyny, the mistreatment of women is writ large in this film. And I think it, for the most part, works. Again, similarly to the beta test I was talking about earlier, I think this drifts a bit by the end. The motivation for what Melanie Laurent does by the end of the film, the place that Melanie Laurent ends up physically by the end of the film, 
I don't think either are fully explained or explored. There is no true conclusion to Lamanda Dietrich's story. We end her appearances on screen in a very traumatic place, and what happened next? I think there needed to be at least a mention of what happened next with Lamanda Dietrich. So I do think it again it loses a bit of direction, it loses a bit of focus by the end. And those are niggling little things which I think could have been handled better. And I also really don't like the overtly supernatural overlay which has been put on this story. But for the most part, I think the two lead performances by Lou de la Arge and Melanie Laurent are both excellent. I think the supporting role from Lamanda Dietrich is excellent. The Parts of the story which are based on reality, which are based on real life, are excellent. So I do think there's a lot to admire and a lot to like about the Mad Women's Ball. But it does drift by the end and I don't like the supernatural overtones. So for me, the Mad Women's Ball, available through Amazon Prime Video, is a reasonably high meh. Netflix and chill. The Harder They Fall is a revisionist western written and directed by James Samuel, who has released music under the moniker The Bullets and is actually the younger brother of Seal, which is kind of interesting. He has directed one feature-length film in the past, They Die by Dawn, which also happens to be the title of the Bullets debut album and James Samuel definitely seems to have a thing because that too is a revisionist black western and a lot of the characters in They Die by Dawn are also in The Harder They Fall. As the opening title card states, while the events of this film are fictional, these people existed. I think James Samuel is determined to show just how multiracial the Old West was. And he does it in this slick, big-budget production which has ended up on Netflix. And I think largely got made thanks to the influence of Jay-Z. Because other than directing that previous film, They Die by Dawn, The other IMDb credit that James Samuel has as a filmmaker is directing Jay-Z's music video for Legacy. So Jay-Z not only acts as a producer for The Harder They Fall, but also was the music coordinator. And there is a broad and diverse soundtrack of brand new music by Jay-Z and many, many interesting artists which gives this film a cool factor it is hard to ignore. It tells the story of real-life Old West outlaw Nat Love, played in the film by Jonathan Majors, who is on a lifelong quest of revenge, trying to seek out Rufus Buck, another real-life figure, played by Idris Elba. He thinks he has finally 
got everybody he wants to get revenge on apart from Rufus Buck himself. But since Rufus Buck is in jail, that quest seems hopeless. But he gets informed that Rufus Buck is just about to be released from jail. So suddenly his quest for vengeance is back on. So he gathers up his gang together, Zazie Beats, RJ Siler and Eddie Gathegi, all playing real-life Old West outlaws, and go after Rufus Buck, Idris Elba, who has gathered together his gang, headed by Regina King and Lakeith Stanfield. So the Nat Love gang and the Rufus Buck gang are headed for a confrontation. And looking on from the sidelines is real-life Old West Sheriff Bass Reeves, as played by Delroy Lindo, and a gender-fluid person, played by Danielle Deadweiler, is also along for the ride. So who will come out of the inevitable gigantic gunfight at the end of The Harder They Fall? Because that's what this film is. It's everything you expect from a traditional Western, but done in a very, very modern way, whilst still playing tribute to the things that came before. This is a very, very black Western. It is 27 minutes into this film before you see a white face. And there are only two scenes in this entire two-hour, 19-minute film which have a white face in them. Other than that, it is almost entirely black, with two Latinos at the beginning. But white face is almost entirely absent from this film which gives it a very modern feel, helped enormously by the very anachronistic and, it has to be said, very cool soundtrack provided by Jay-Z and his friends, and I suppose James Samuel's friends as well. People like Lauren Vula, CeeLo Brown, Kid Cudi, Barrington Levi, Miss Lauren Hill, Seal, <laughs> and Fella Cootie. The hyper-stylized way in which this has been shot, the anachronistic soundtrack, really stands out. But this also pays tribute, I think, to the spaghetti westerns of the 60s and 70s. There's a lot of elements which would not look at all out of place in a Sergio Leone film, apart from the fact that there's so many black faces. I mean, there's excessive and elaborate gore very specific pieces of production design. I mean, Rufus Buck carries around gold-plated pistols, and there's a distinctive tattoo which you know is just going to come back eventually. Towards the end, there's even a fight in a fist fight, a hand-to-hand -hand fight in a dye workshop. So that literalizes that this is a very colourful film. And there's lots of quick draws. I mean, there's lots of stuff about the mythology 
and the machismo of the quick draw. And there's one character played by RJ Siler who is determined to prove that he is the fastest gun in the West. And everybody is around him is saying, look, stop playing around. This is serious stuff. Who cares if you're the fastest? You just need to survive. And the way that subplot plays out about who is the quickest gun has a really, really nice payoff, in my opinion. And it also mythologizes the idea of the outlaw in the Old West. I mean, how many Westerns are about the outlaws? But we do have the older generation and a a generation of authority in the person of Marshal Bass Reeves, played by Delroy Linda. Now, Bass Reeves is a very important figure in the Old West. He's the first black marshal, the first black lawman who was in the Old West. There's already been a very low-budget film out about him within the last couple of years. And supposedly Chloe Zhao's next film is going to be about Marshal Bass Reeves. So this is a very important figure in the Old West. And being played by Delroy Lindo, it's just brilliant. But this dichotomy of the lawman not necessarily being the authority in this situation, the person with the biggest gun and the most will to use it is generally the person in charge. And usually that's not the law. That's not Bass Reeves. And he has to adjust himself to that and acknowledges, you know, being very pragmatic, you know, I'll just stand back. And if I have the opportunity to actually arrest somebody, I will. But that's not my goal. That's not going to be the way things work out. I know that's not going to be the way things work out. So this is the situation I find myself in. And yeah, the elaborate ways this works out, the hyper-stylized way in which it has been directed. I mean, there's a scene in an Old West saloon which looks more like it comes out of a Belle Epoque Paris nightclub than it does a saloon in the Old West. I don't think it's any accident that one of the early things that James Samuel did in his career was he is a musical executive producer on Baz Luhrmann's Moulin Rouge, which I think has a lot in common with that particular scene, which is extraordinary. The production design and the costume design of this are exceptional, particularly the second time we have white characters in the the film and the subtitle, the caption that comes up here is, it's a white town. And the way that is portrayed on screen is delightfully subversive. It's a fascinating, exuberant, stylized and stylish film. It has some important things to say. I mean, the treatment of black people in the Old West, how at one of the same time it was an escape, it was a utopian ideal that some of these gunmen are fighting for, and yet white settlers are eventually going to come and just sweep all this away. So this is a brief period of grace before inevitably the black population is once again going to be ground into the dirt and people are trying to stop that even the overall evil rufus buck as played by idris elba his ideals are good he's a complete psychopath who's going to kill loads of people in order to get his ideals but his ideals are utopian 
and exploring that is one of the things that this film does. But one of the things I do like about the film is I don't think that is the be-all and end-all of this film. This is not a film about black cowboys. It's a film where the cowboys happen to be black. And I think that is a distinction. I think it's a crucial distinction. Because it does raise those issues of racism and the systematic destruction of a black society. But it doesn't dwell on them. It acknowledges them, but it doesn't dwell on them. And at the end of the day, it's just one gang fighting against another gang and shooting each other in a very elaborate and very well-staged shootout at the end. They just happen to be black. And it happens to be done in a hyper-stylized, colourful, kinetic way. And yeah, I think it really, really works. I think this is an adventurous film. I think this is an exciting film. I think it does have some valid points to say. But more than anything, it's just fun. With an excellent soundtrack, an excellent feel to it, I did really enjoy myself. So for me... The Harder They Fall on Netflix is a very, very high meh. And then we come to Red Notice, which is reportedly the most expensive film that Netflix has ever produced for itself. It is a gigantic action comedy with the gigantic Hollywood stars Dwayne Johnson, Ryan Reynolds and Gal Gadot and is directed and written by Rawson Marshall Thurber, who close to 20 years ago directed Dodgeball, and more recently has directed We're the Millers, which was a nice little comedy, which I did enjoy, and apparently there's a sequel on its way, which I'm not sure how that's going to work, but We're the Millers was good. And then he also directed Central Intelligence, which I do actually really, really like, The Rock showing just how good a comedian he actually is. And then he directed Skyscraper, a big dumb action movie, which I must admit I haven't seen, but once again, got lots of box office for The Rock. And now for the third feature-length film in a row, Rawson Marshall Thurber is directing The Rock, who plays an FBI profiler who specialises in art crime. The Rock, really? A psychologist art expert? But regardless, The Rock is an art expert who is working alongside Interpol Inspector Ritu Arya in order to track down one of the world's greatest art thieves, played by Ryan Reynolds, who is reportedly going to steal one of Cleopatra's golden eggs from an art gallery in Rome. This heist is foiled, but Ryan Reynolds gets away and is eventually caught up to in Bali, but off the back of capturing Ryan Reynolds, the golden egg goes missing. And Dwayne Johnson is framed for this crime of stealing this golden egg. 
And suddenly his colleague, Ritsu Arya, wants to arrest him. So he gets thrown into a Russian black site prison where, would you know it, his cellmate is Ryan Reynolds. And Dwayne Johnson and Ryan Reynolds manage to escape this prison after having a confrontation with the best art thief in the world, Gal Gadot, who is the person who set up Dwayne Johnson. So Dwayne Johnson and Ryan Reynolds go on the run, searching for the third golden egg of Cleopatra, trying to prove that Gal Gadot set up Dwayne Johnson, and at least on Dwayne Johnson's part, trying to get Ryan Reynolds back in jail. So will this globe-spanning caper come to a satisfying conclusion? The one thing you can say about Red Notice is it is really, really fucking dumb. This is a stupid movie. Cleopatra had three giant golden eggs given to her on her wedding day by Mark Antony. Really? The Rock is both a psychologist and an art expert? Really? Gal Gadot can get in and out of a Russian black site prison wearing high heels? Really? An Interpol inspector like Ritu Arya has the ability and the will to throw somebody into a Russian black site jail. And it has to be said, the evidence against Dwayne Johnson is very, very slim. And even thanks to that, he gets sent to jail. I mean, one phone call saying, oh no, that's not, he's not an FBI agent and he's sent into jail. Do you maybe want to check that a little bit further? Maybe you should have thought of that. And yet, he gets thrown into a Russian black site jail by Interpol. How does that work? At least once during the course of this film, and possibly as many as three times, there is a Wilhelm scream, which you will be familiar with if you listen to my podcasts all the way to the end. This is really, really stupid stuff. But in places it does know how stupid it is, there are some self-aware moments. As Ryan Reynolds is getting away from this Italian museum, The Rock jumps into a Porsche, turns the key, and immediately on the stereo, Sabotage by the Beastie Boys comes on. I mean, how typical can you get? But I do love the fact that it immediately gets subverted. There's also a planning montage. I mean, in any heist movie, you have the montage. You have what, this is the way things will go. Here is the plan being laid out, and you know it's not going to work. But in this film, the planning montage doesn't go as it, it's supposed to. It's subverted in that way. And towards the end of the film, there is literally a line where Ryan Reynolds says, look for a box that says MacGuffin. That is a literal line of dialogue in this film. 
in certain places, this film is self-aware enough to know how stupid it is. But those moments are few and far between. And more than anything, it is just rock stupid. It is dumb as fuck. And it doesn't care. This is the type of film where it's set up in such a way that you know there are going to be so many twists at the end. Oh no, that person's a bad guy. Oh no, now they're a good guy. Now they're a bad guy. And you know, it's going to happen again and again and again. And you can see it coming. It is laid out so clearly in front of you that you know this is what's going to happen. And it's also a film which is overtly trying to set up sequels. And really, I, 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 what are we doing here? I'm all for fun, subversive, anarchic entertainment. Switch your brain off. Have a film where apparently there are giant golden eggs that Cleopatra owned, and one of them might be hidden in a secret chamber in the Great Pyramid. I mean, so far, so national treasure. There is some fun to be had here, but spending this much money on it, spending this much effort on it, having three genuine A-list stars in your film, which can't have been cheap. I suppose this film cost something like $200 million, how much of that was spent on its three stars. This much effort to get to this really, really stupid movie. Was it worth it? I guess. I mean, I had a diverting enough time, I guess. But it's so, so stupid, I can't fully support it. So, yeah, it it does what it sets out to, basically. It doesn't try very hard. It doesn't achieve very much. But that's what it set out to do. It set out to be a stupid action comedy movie, and that's what we end up with. But I can't say I'm eager to see another one. I can't say I'm eager to see a film like it again. So for me, Red Notice on Netflix is a really, really low meh. It's not so bad that I will give it a nay but it's just so rock stupid, I can't fully support it. Coming attractions. It seems that one week is as much as the distribution companies are willing to give Eternals extra to itself, because this week coming up, there are several films being released. There are a couple of wide-release films, which each in their own way are rather big and important, as well as a couple of foreign language films. At the blockbuster end of the spectrum, we have Ghostbusters Afterlife, a continuation of the Ghostbusters franchise, which, as far as I can tell, seems to be completely ignoring the female Ghostbusters, which we had a couple of years ago, which is really, really depressing with the misogynist, incel bastards decrying anything which has a female lead. But regardless, it looks like it's a continuation or expansion on the original films. 
and it is directed by Jason Reitman, who is a brilliant, brilliant director. He started out really, really strongly with films like Up in the Air and Juno and Thank You for Smoking. He's tailed off a little bit since then, but I still really, really respect him as a director. And it's very interesting that Jason Reitman is taking over the Ghostbusters franchise from his father, Ivan Reitman, who was the director of the original film. So that's cool. In this version, we are in the middle of nowhere, probably somewhere like Nebraska or something. I haven't actually checked, but it's remote cornfields where a completely broke family moves to the middle of nowhere. Well, the local teacher is Paul Rudd and these kids don't fit in, but they do find a mysterious old hearse-like car in their barn and they also find a ghost trap. And wouldn't you know it, there are mysterious and possibly spooky things going on in this remote Midwestern town. So there are ghosts that need to be busted and these teenage kids are going to do it. So hey, why not? Sounds pretty cool to me. Although I am slightly annoyed that the Kristen Wiig, Melissa McCarthy, Kate McKinnon, Leslie Jones Ghostbusters haven't continued, or it doesn't look like they'll be continuing. But regardless, I am intrigued by Ghostbusters Afterlife. The other wide release out this week is important and impressive in another way. It's possibly the first really, really strong contender that has been released here in the UK for the Oscar for Best Picture, and certainly the Oscar for Best Leading Actor. Even though, personally speaking, I'm a little ambivalent about this film. It is King Richard, which looks like it's finally going to get Will Smith, his Oscar for Best Leading Actor, playing Richard Williams the father of Venus and Serena Williams. And this is a biopic focused on him. Now I struggle with this. Personally speaking, I think the hot housing techniques that Richard Williams used, moulding his daughters into the outstanding tennis players they became. I'm not sure that's something that should be applauded. I'm not sure that's something that should be praised. I don't see this story as an inspirational story of triumphing over adversity, you know, poor little black girls becoming immensely rich and powerful. I see it as a borderline mentally abusive man moulding his daughters into his vision. I don't think that's something to applaud. But because it is a serious Oscar contender, definitely for Will Smith, and it also seems to be something of a contender for Best Picture as well, I'm going to see King Richard, even though I am deeply ambivalent about it. But uh, yeah, we're just going to have to see what the film ends up being. It's directed by Ronaldo Marcus Green whose first film, Men and Monsters, I didn't actually like very much, and his second film, Good Joe Bell, still has not been given a legal release here in the UK. It was listed 
in last year's gold derby lists of Oscar potential and then mysteriously was removed, presumably because the release date changed and possibly the release date has something to do with the somewhat negative publicity which has come up around its star, Matt Damon. And this is a film about Matt Damon walking across America because his son is bullied because he's gay. So an inclusive story starring Matt Damon, who's made some very, very stupid comments over recent months and years. So yeah, maybe that's got something to do why it's never got a legal release. But yeah, Ronaldo Marcus Green's third film is coming out here in the UK before his second film. But anyway, yeah, King Richard is out this week and I will be seeing it and seeing if it impresses me. On the Art House International end of things, we also have a Japanese film released called Drive My Car. This is the film that Japan has submitted to this year's international feature competition and has been getting a lot of buzz. It played at the London Film Festival, and weirdly, the director of this film, Yusuke Hamaguchi, had two films playing at the London Film Festival this year. He seems to have suddenly become very prolific after a somewhat slow-paced beginning to his career. Um, It also played at the Film Bath Festival, but I skipped it because I knew it was coming out very shortly, and... It's also three hours long, so I didn't really fancy putting myself through that in the middle of an intense period of film watching. So yes, Drive My Car is out this week. It is three hours long. And it is based on a short story by the legendary Japanese author Haruki Murakami about a playwright whose wife died a couple of years ago and is invited to be part of a theatre festival in Hiroshima and forms a bond with his stoic female chauffeur who drives him back and forth between the theatre and the hotel and opening up to each other and uncovering people's secrets, all that kind of stuff. But yeah, it does sound interesting, but it is three hours long. so. Yes, Drive My Car is out this week and I will be checking it out. And the other international feature, the other foreign language film uh, that is out this week, is one that I did see at the Film Bath Festival, and that is Celine Sciamma's film Petite Maman, which I think is a charming, delightful little film about an eight-year-old girl playing in the woods with another eight-year-old girl who looks exactly like her. It's sweet, it's charming, it's understated, and yes, I was duly impressed with Petite Maman. I do recommend it, and it is out this week. Although I won't be seeing it at the cinema since I've already seen it at the Film Bath Festival. On streaming platforms, I was on iTunes the other day for research purposes, you know, checking what's coming out and that kind of thing when I noticed that they had a special offer on. And one of the films that was on my list was available very, very cheap on the iTunes store. So I thought, okay, may as well buy it, save myself a little bit of money, and since I'm here, I'll also buy or rent the two foreign language films which 
still seemingly only available on the iTunes store rather than the Google Play store. So I now have three films lined up on my iTunes account to watch over the coming weeks and months. The first one, the one that was on offer, is the Jake Johnson starring American indie comedy Ride the Eagle in which Jake Johnson inherits a lakeside cabin from his estranged mother, Susan Sarandon, but the eccentric Susan Sarandon has put some stipulations in her will, and Jake Johnson must complete essentially a bucket list before he is legally able to take possession of this lakeside cottage. So from beyond the grave, Susan Sarandon is trying to connect with her son, encourage her son, and hilarity ensues, or at least from what it looks like it ensues. It's also got J.K. Simmons in it, which is always a good thing. So yeah, Ride the Eagle did look interesting, and since I could rent it for a pound, I did. And since I was there already, I also rented the Czech foreign language film Servants, about a group of seminary students in communist Czechoslovakia of the 1950s who become increasingly aware that when they become priests, when they go out to their parishes, they will be expected to essentially spy for the secret police. So what is the morals and ethics of that situation? What is the intersection between faith and surviving in a totalitarian state? And that sounds absolutely fascinating, and that's what the Czech film Servants is about. There's also the Georgian film Beginning, which was Georgia's submission to last year's International Film Oscar. It tells the story of a woman who lives in a community of Jehovah's Witnesses in Georgia. But when a mob attacks this remote Jehovah's Witness village, she has to reassess her life and maybe possibly find some self-determination living outside this sect, is the polite way of describing the Jehovah's Witnesses, I think. But yeah, that does look absolutely fascinating, and it still hasn't been widely available on streaming, so I did get a rental of that on iTunes. And once I've got through those three films, the other highest priority streaming films I've still got are Wild Indian, about a Native American man who did something or covered up something terrible when he was young. But now his past is back to haunt him, and he has to try and reconcile his violent past with his modern life, where he is more or less fully assimilated into white society with a white wife and a white boss. So can he keep his life together with the past coming up to haunt him? And I'm also morbidly fascinated in the erotic thriller on Amazon Prime, The Voyeurs, about a young couple who move into an apartment and start involving themselves in the lives of another young couple who they can see out of their window across the courtyard, and things don't go well from that. 
so yeah, I, I do want to check that out at some point, and that is pretty high up on my list of priorities for streaming stuff. On Netflix, there are two new films which are being released this week, both of which are very, very different. Firstly, we have another film which is a little bit of an Oscar contender, Tick, Tick, Boom, which is a musical starring Andrew Garfield and directed by Lin-Manuel Miranda. This is his directorial feature film debut, although it is not his work. This is a musical based on a work by and the life of Jonathan Larson. Now, if you don't know the name Jonathan Larson, he has one of those stories that really did happen, but it feels like it's the plot of a Hollywood movie. Jonathan Larson was a struggling composer and Broadway guy in New York in the 1990s. He had a couple of minor successes, but his magnum opus was just on the horizon. Eventually, he wrote Rent, which was a smash hit, a gigantic success on Broadway. But the very day that Rent premiered its run off Broadway, Jonathan Larson died of complications due to an undiagnosed heart defect. So just as this monumental success was about to happen, he died on the very day it was about to happen. And that's the kind of shit that you wouldn't necessarily believe if it was in a Hollywood movie. But that's what happened. And Jonathan Larson will forever and always be the guy who wrote Rent. But one of the earlier successes he had, one of the minor successes he had, was a one-man show called Tick, Tick, Boom, or what that was eventually called Tick, Tick, Boom. It was Jonathan Larson on stage with a rock band and a piano, and it was basically a monologue telling his life story of struggling to be a composer, struggling to write musicals, living in dingy New York apartments with loads of other artists and creatives and all this kind of stuff surrounded by people doing drugs and dying of AIDS, the very subject matter that would eventually become Rant. But he wrote this autobiographical monologue, this rock monologue called Tick, Tick, Boom, which was a minor success. And after his death, it was reworked from this monologue state into a full stage production and that full stage production has now been turned into a film directed by Lin-Manuel Miranda and starring Andrew Garfield. So yeah, Jonathan Larson's story is incredible, and this is an autobiographical musical by Jonathan Larson about struggling to make it, but I'm sure the majority of the audience will know that, yeah, he's the guy who wrote Rent. His success is coming, at least posthumous success. So. Yeah, it's going to be intriguing, and it's been a really good year for musicals. In the Heights and Everybody Loves Jamie, I think, were both great movie musicals, and we're going to have to see if Tick, Tick, Boom on Netflix also stands up to that scrutiny. 
and it is one of those films that's in and around the Oscar potential on Gold Derby, so we're going to have to see how that goes. And the other film which is released this week onto Netflix is a very, very different proposition. It's a documentary called Procession. This is a potentially harrowing documentary about a group of men who are all survivors of sexual abuse by Catholic priests coming together to have some confrontation therapy. The idea of confrontation therapy is to recreate and reenact what happened to you, the traumatic events which happened to you in your youth. And maybe this will be a part of catharsis and try and help you get through it and help you deal with what happened to you in the past. And this group of men agree to do this confrontation therapy and write themselves, create themselves these scenarios, reenacting what happened to them when they were children and were abused by Catholic priests and allow them to be filmed. And this is the basis of this documentary. And, yeah, that has the potential to be very harrowing, but I also think it has the potential to be very, very fascinating. It kind of strikes me a little bit like the act of killing, a little bit like that. I mean, from you know the perpetrators that time rather than the victims this time. But it's also done by a rather interesting director, Robert Green who consistently does this blending of fact and fiction, the act of creating something narrative in a documentary setting is what Robert Greene has consistently done throughout his career. He's the guy who a few years ago made the brilliant documentary, or at least in my opinion, brilliant documentary, Kate Plays Christine, about the actress Caitlin Shire researching the role of Christine Chubbuck, the Florida newscaster who committed suicide live on air. And by investigating the life of Christine Chubbuck and trying to work through the process of acting as Christine Chubbuck, I think we come to something really, really special. And yeah, I think Kate Plays Christine was fantastic, particularly as a companion piece to the narrative feature Christine which I will say once again, Rebecca Hall should have got an Oscar nomination for Best Actress, and I'll be coming back to Rebecca Hall in a moment. But yeah, Kate Plays Christine, the documentary, and the film Christine, directed by Antonio Campos, are both really fascinating explorations of the life of Christine Chubbuck, and I really, really did like the documentary Kate Plays Christine. And I'm also fascinated to see what Robert Greene does with this particular scenario of men reenacting their childhood abuse and seeing what happens when they do that. I mean, is this a terrible idea which will traumatise them even further, or will this be some genuine catharsis? We will have to find out. I mean, it could be harrowing, but I am fascinated by the documentary Procession, which is available this week on Netflix. The other Netflix films which are my house priority is the 
aforementioned Rebecca Hall making her directorial debut in passing with two mixed race women confronting their identities in 1920s Brooklyn. There's another film which blends the narrative and the documentary, the Mexican film A Cop Movie, where a male and a female cop work on the corrupt streets of Mexico City, but are they actors? Are they actual policemen? I'm not sure, but I'm fascinated to find out. There's also the horror movie that's basically collateral only vampires, Night Teeth, as a chauffeur drives around two hot young women and it's only then he realises that these hot young women are actually vampires who are trying to start a war in the underworld. And there's also Night Books, where Kristen Ritter is a witch who kidnaps little kids and insists that they tell her stories. And I'm also kind of fascinated by the home invasion movie Intrusion, starring Frida Pinto as a woman who suffers a home invasion and in the aftermath of this maybe starts to realise that her husband might not be all that he appears to be. So that could be quite trashy, but also could be quite fun. So those are my highest priorities. And in the next episode, with any luck, I will be reviewing the cinematic films Ghostbusters Afterlife, King Richard and Ride My Car. And hopefully I'll have time to watch all three of the films I've got downloaded onto my iTunes account. Ride the Eagle, Servants and Beginning. And maybe some Netflix stuff and some other streaming stuff if I find the time. But that is what will be in the next episode. And I also still have to work on the July foreplay that I'm gradually recording as and when I can. But that's all for this episode. And a reminder that the one yay of this particular show is the beta test. Once again, Jim Cummings creates a complicated and not particularly likeable character, but tells a fascinating story. I think it does lose a little bit of direction and a little bit of focus by the end, but I do think the beta test has some fascinating things to say and says them in a compelling way. And I do think it is a very good film. Actually, it would make a really, really good double bill with the film Lucky, which was released onto Shudder earlier in the year, but now has made, made available on streaming platforms. Written by and starring Bria Grant, so I think that's an excellent film and would make a, an excellent companion piece to The Beta Test. But The Beta Test is the one yay of this particular episode, and you can find it on streaming platforms. So now all that remains for me to say is this has been Yay Nay Oma presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I've been host Colin Gaisley coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. Email is rawfootagepodcast at gmail.com or you can tweet me at rawfootagepod. And I'll see you next time where I shine a light on cinema, both obvious and obscure. Ah!